Galatians 6. Um, let me pray and, and we'll make our way through this. Father, we thank you so much for the privilege of gathering together to worship and for the blessing of having been made worshipers in spirit and in truth. Uh, so that what we're doing here is not primarily about us or how well we sing or how closely we pay attention, but that we are in relationship with you through the blood and the death and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. We praise and magnify you, Jesus, for the life that you lived and the life that you now live sitting at the right hand of the Father and interceding for us um, were it not for you, there would be no hope. Holy Spirit, we ask this morning that as we look into your word, you would anoint me as I speak and all of us to hear truth from Scripture. We're hungry and we're listening. So we pray that you would minister to us through Galatians chapter 6. And we pray for this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Last week we covered verses six through eight, and we saw seven things, not the normal three. There were an additional four, and seven is the number of perfection, so it was probably the better sermon, right? The first thing that we saw, and, and because I was dealing with what I think is the uncomfortable topic of uh, pastoral pay, and let the record state we're only dealing with this because we've made our way faithfully through every other verse in this entire epistle. Um, I, I always kind of want to lean off the gas when we come to this subject because I'm telling you, I mean, I heard it this week. The number one complaint that I get from lost people about church is money. The church is just after my money. I'm not interested in uh, being bilked out of my money. And so... I'm intensely sensitive to the fact that somebody could walk through the doors, finally, right? You convinced your family or family member or friend to come to church and they walk through the doors and what's the guy talking about? Paying the pastor. Um, so what I tried to do was, was deal faithfully with the text, but deal with it in such a way that, that it's dealt fully with and not just uh, some perverted effort to guilt the congregation into giving. So here's what we said. First, um, that the scriptures say there are some men gifted to understand and teach the scriptures. Um, and I think I, I, I interjected everybody who knows Jesus Christ is gifted to understand the scriptures. Not everybody who knows Christ is gifted to explain the scriptures or teach the scriptures. So not all men are called to this job or all women called to the job of some kind of um, a, a women's equivalent ministry. I'm not an egalitarian, sorry. Um, the gift, second, relates to preaching the word, not my word, but the Bible. So the content of the preaching has to be biblical more than personal. Third, the man who is gifted is also to be deemed qualified by the observation of his life. So in 1 Timothy 3 and Titus 1, there's a, a robust list of qualifications given 
that anybody who preaches or teaches the scriptures needs to be living up to before they should expect to have an audience. Um, and the idea there is that, I guess the responsibility is on you to observe my life closely enough to decide that I have not only the gift of teaching, but the qualifications to be teaching. That's not something I can decide all on. I mean, I can, but there are a lot of people, uh, there was, there are a lot of people preaching on the internet to nobody, right? And, and uh, some of you will remember back in the days of cable access, there were guys who, like local guys, who would pay for an hour or whatever a week to be on cable access to rail and holler and like, but they were in their basement talking to nobody, right? If someone's not qualified, they ought not have an audience. But the qualifications are not just your personal preference. The qualifications are objective and they're laid out in scripture, I believe most, most clearly in 1 Timothy 3. So the one who teaches must be one who, per, who not perfectly, but really lives up to those qualifications. Fourth, they are not lords of the faith, but they are men who have been installed by God to help your joy in Christ. The legalist, abusive pastor who seeks to control the conduct of his flock by taking authority which does not belong to him and demanding loyalty which is not owed to him should be fled from, not hearkened to. I'm not a lord of the faith. I'm not a ruler of the faith. I'm supposed to be a helper of the faith. In 2 Timothy 2, 24, Paul says the Lord's servant, and he's talking about pastors, must not be quarrelsome, but kind to everyone, able to teach, patiently enduring evil, correcting his opponents with gentleness. God may perhaps grant them repentance, leading to a knowledge of the truth, and they may come to their senses and escape the snare of the devil after being captured by him to do his will. So what I think is if a pastor's corrections consistently, because everybody's going to have their moment, but if a pastor's corrections consistently lack gentleness, he is not a pastor, he is a wolf. And his objective is certainly not to point you to Christ. So then I think it follows that a preacher who is given to angry, pouty, self-interested preaching probably doesn't have a healthy marriage, probably doesn't have his kids under control, and whether you're aware of it or not, his violent and immature nature is the cause of his disqualification. Now, I said that last week, and I've said it again this week, and I cannot any longer resist the urge to add a caveat. I said it a few minutes ago. Everybody has their moments. So we're looking over the span of time. What is this man like consistently? Because even I've had my moments, right? Oh, I guess not. Great. Uh, fifth, it is the duty of those who are taught to support those who teach by communicating with them in all good things. The idea here is if I sow spiritual things in you, it's not unreasonable for me to reap a, a temporal or a physical crop from you. 
Um, I have to let that hang in the air, even though I don't want to. Sixth, the Bible makes the added distinction that it is the hard-working teacher who should receive practical provision. 2 Timothy 2, 6, it is the hard-working farmer who ought to have the first share of the crops. Think over what I say, for the Lord will give you understanding in everything. And I said the word there, oh, somebody's going to the fair. Run out and invite them in for church. <laughs> Nobody's going to do it? All right, that's fine. I was joking. The word there, I said, in, is it working? It is now. What was it doing? It had to click to Oh. So many distractions. Uh, the word in the Greek for hardworking, it's very important that I remember this because you won't be impressed unless, it, unless I do. Kopia'au uh, or kopia'u which is translated multiple times in scripture as, as giving wearisome effort, meaning the teacher who's worthy to be compensated ought to be a guy who's making himself tired in an effort to communicate the scriptures to you. Um, here today, I would add this, because I don't want you to come to my house this afternoon and see how tired I am, because I don't think it's the job of the good shepherd to let the sheep know how, how hard his life is, right? So how can you observe that it's hard working, the, the teaching that you're, that you're given? A hardworking teacher might demonstrate care by organizing his messages according to the scripture. There should be at regular intervals in any preaching message that you listen, listen to, there should be at regular intervals a pointing to here's where the Bible says that. Otherwise, I'm just up here yammering on about whatever interests me. Second, outlining his messages to help you along. This sounds self-serving, but these, like the guys that I've listened to where I've been like, man, that was really helpful. There's an organization and a flow to the way that they preach, where they work through the text, and they're not just ping-ponging all over the place. Third, they illustrate their points with real-life examples. That takes work. This stuff doesn't just come to me while I'm standing. I mean, sometimes it does. Most of the time, these things don't just come to me while I'm standing up here. Fourth, by entertaining you with a balance of levity. <laughs> I think that's important. Fifth, by communicating a clear message which sticks. Okay, now let's test and see if I am a hardworking teacher or not. I almost took this out. I'm like, don't do this to yourself, James, but I'm going to do it. I need one word, don't shout it out, raise your hand, and then we'll take a vote. One word that comes to mind that you have taken away from all of my hard work in Galatians. Now I'm gonna help, I'm gonna help. The primary thing that I've returned to as we've made our way through this book, beginning in the very first message that I preached, where I talked about the fact that our fall into sin as humanity 
created a separation between us and God. That's where we started. And the primary thing that I focused on all through Galatians is God's desire to be, raise your hand, Garrett. And let's vote. Is that the word relationship? Okay. I communicate a clear message which sticks. Okay. Thanks, Mom. Man, guys are rough. Seventh and finally, we saw that in order to benefit from the teaching, you must participate. Two questions then. Number one, how do you participate? And, and so then there's two answers to that question. How do you participate? Number one, you have to pay attention. It's not my fault if you sit there and think about literally anything but what I'm saying all morning long. That's on you. And second, you should, when you can, give generously to the church. Second question, that was the first question. How do you participate? Pay attention, give to the church. Second question, how do you benefit how do you know if you are benefiting, right? And I've got three answers. Do you know Jesus better now than you did a year ago when I started here? Yes. <laughs> are you more interested in the things of God now? Is your walk with God being encouraged by the teaching that you hear? H-E-A-R, hear, H-E-R-E. Is your walk with God being encouraged? If the answer is no, to those questions, then there are two possibilities. Number one, you're not being taught well. Possibility number two, you're not participating. Can we agree on that? Yep. Yes. All right, very good. Galatians 6, verse 7. Do not be deceived. God is not mocked. For whatever one sows, that will he also reap. For the one who sows to his own flesh will from the flesh reap corruption, but the one who sows to the Spirit will from the Spirit reap eternal life. Um, let's let that, no, go back, put it back up, thanks. Let's let this sink in for just a second. Directive, verse 7. Don't be deceived. Threatening statement. God is not mocked. Whatever one sows, that will he also reap. Fact of nature. You're not going to put a uh, tomato seed in the ground and get cucumbers. It's a fact of nature. What you sow, you will reap. So you've got a directive, don't be deceived. A threatening statement, God's not mocked. And then a fact of nature, whatever you sow, that you will reap. For the one who sows to his own flesh will from the flesh reap corruption, but the one who sows to the Spirit will reap from the Spirit, I'm sorry, will from the Spirit reap eternal life. Now, I want us to be, I'm pleading with you, I want us to be very, very careful that we understand sowing and reaping in the light of grace and not the law. It just seems like, Well, I'll be transparent. If it was my instinct when I started preparing this sermon to interpret it in terms of law, then it's safe for me to assume it's going to be your instinct as you start understanding it 
to interpret it in terms of law. So I'm just trying to steer us out of that skid before we really lose control, all right? In order to do this, in order to understand these verses in terms of grace, and in, and, and in order for us to understand sowing and reaping in terms of grace, we have to first make sure we know what sowing is and then understand what reaping is. Sowing is defined in the dictionary as the act of scattering seed for growing. So in biblical terms, what is sowing? The act of scattering seed for growing? Or is something else meant by this in light of grace? I'll give you a hint. I think something else is meant by, all right? Three questions. When are you sowing? That's question one. When are you sowing? Question two, where are you sowing? And then question three, why are you sowing? And the answer to these questions will depend entirely on what sowing even is. Where? Where am I doing it? When am I doing it? Why am I doing it? Depends on what it is. I can't even identify where I'm doing it, when I'm doing it, and why I'm doing it, unless I know what it is. So here's what the Bible says, Proverbs 6, 19. A false witness breathes out lies, and one who sows discord, I'm sorry, a false witness who breathes out lies, and one who sows discord among the brothers. Sowing discord, same word. What is sowing in this case? Proverbs 11, 18. The wicked earns deceptive wages, but one who sows righteousness will get a sure reward. So what, what, what's sowing in that case? It's like we're not being helped so far. Are we in agreement? It's not helpful. We just, the Bible just assumes, you know what that means, right? Third, Proverbs 22, 8. Whoever sows injustice will reap calamity and the rod of his fury will fail. So sowing injustice, again, sowing discord. Sowing righteousness. This is what the Bible says. And it always says it as though you must already know what it means. The only exception would be when Jesus in Matthew 13, Mark 4, and Luke 8, all the synoptic gospels, Jesus tells the parable of the sower. Even there, it doesn't really help us with Galatians 6 because he's telling a story about a farmer. And we're not farmers. Well, maybe some of you are way back in the back, with a father-in-law in the armpit of the world. How does one sow discord? How does one sow righteousness? How does one sow injustice? Well, I think we could answer it if, we, if I went around the room and just said, hey, sound it out. Like, say it out loud for me. What do you think the answer is? You'd probably say, well, discord is sown whenever we slander somebody. We're sowing seeds that lead to disunity and disharmony when we talk about somebody behind their back. How do we sow injustice? Well, injustice is sown when we lie. Everybody in this room remembers not the events, but the emotional experience of your first lie blowing up in your face. You may not even remember what the lie was, but you've it's because, it, it, because it's the same experience every time after that. You know what it's like to say something today that's not true that a week later explodes. That's sowing injustice. Sowing righteousness. What's that? 
Well, that's, that's sown whenever we share the gospel or tell the truth, right? So what I'm trying to do is assign actions to sowing because it seems to represent a lot of different things. Could we define sowing in biblical terms as engaging in behaviors that produce a larger result in the future? And could we, generically speaking, say that sowing to the flesh is another way of saying sinning? And sowing to the spirit is another way of saying being obedient? Why doesn't Paul just say that then? Whoever sins will reap corruption and whoever obeys God will reap eternal life. And to be certain, a lot of teachers would say precisely that. Well, that's exactly what he means. Sowing to the flesh, sinning. Sowing to the spirit, obeying God. So, do you want to reap corruption? Sin. Do you want to go to heaven? Obey God. But it seems like a horrible way for Paul to conclude an epistle which says to the contrary, justification is by faith and not works. So when we're talking about practical sanctification, that process by which we are made to actually be like Jesus Christ over time, I think we'd better be extremely careful about saying things like, whoever sins will reap corruption and whoever obeys will reap eternal life because that's a performance-based system which means we'd better be very careful about defining sowing as individual behaviors, defining sowing as individual behaviors bifurcated into two categories of either obedience or sin. Sowing has got to mean more than doing things that are sinful, doing things that are obedient. It must be that Paul means something else. Otherwise, here's what you're going to do. You're going to spend your time trying to figure out where the balance of your sowing is so that you can then determine where you're going when you die. Have I done more sinning or have I done more obeying? And if you're honest, you know what you're going to find? Ain't nobody headed for eternal life. How about this? All right, Kate, put it up. <laughs> Sowing should be defined as the investment of our time, talents, emotional and physical energy, and practical resources in the soil of day-to-day -day life. Leave it up. Let's try, it. Let's try it in the verse. I'll read the verse. You think about how we're inserting the definition in. The one who invests his time, talents, emotional and physical energy, and practical resources to the pleasure of his own flesh, will from the flesh reap corruption. The one who invests his time, talents, emotional and physical energy and practical resources in the spirit will from the spirit reap eternal life. Now, does that work a little better than sowing to the flesh is sinning, sowing to the spirit is obeying? Does that work a little, is it a little bit more nuanced? Kind of. But we need to understand flesh and spirit, right? Bearing in mind, we have defined flesh previously as a reference to our remaining fallen sinful nature, not your skin, your muscles, or the connective tissue. Flesh is a reference to once you become a Christian, 
that leftover propensity to still do evil things. That's the flesh. Who remembers June 26th, 2022? So not even two months ago. Barely more than a month ago, right? Who remembers it? Galatians 5.19, the works of the flesh are evident, sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these. I warn you as I warned you before that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. At the risk of sounding self-congratulatory, let me quote myself from that sermon. I said, these first three items fall under the category of physical sexual desires. I said... Any sexual experience outside the context of covenant relationship is a work of the flesh. And you all didn't say, you're wrong, and leave, so I'm assuming you agreed with me. Okay? Second, I said, idolatry and sorcery are worship sins. So then I said, if that's true, we'd better be careful to make sure that our affections don't terminate on the gifts that God gives us, but rather that our affections terminate on the giver of those gifts as we enjoy the gifts. And I said, we should be very, very deliberate about the mind-altering substances we put into our bodies, drugs and alcohol. I said, be deliberate. I didn't say, do not handle, do not taste, do not touch. I said, be deliberate, be thoughtful. I said, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, and factions all have to do with human relationships. Paul places all of the relationship-destroying sins in the same list with the grosser sins that the church traditionally detests. Remember that? Some of you? Just look at me and nod. I don't even care if you're lying at this point. I want to know that you're paying attention. Okay. Then I said, licentiousness demands the rights of a child while denying the nature and character of a child. Licentiousness is demanding that you be treated like a child of God without being at all willing to act like a child of God. Here's how we broke it down. The cause is I'm loved by God. The effect is we love other people. Human relationship destroying sins are being put away in favor of loving people because we've been loved by Jesus Christ. Right? Okay? Don't get the cart before the horse. The cause is I'm saved from sin into relationship with my creator. The effect is I cannot practice, which means my life cannot be consistently marked by deeds of the flesh or works of the flesh. Cause. Jesus saved me from sin and brought me into relationship with my heavenly father. Effect. I am at war with my fleshly desires. Okay? If you are not at war, you are not a child of God. Who remembers July 3rd? The fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law. Four points from this sermon. I said these are not works, they are fruit. Second, I said the fruit is not ours, it is his. Third, I said the fruit is not plural, it is singular because we will produce all of it. 
And fourth, I said that the fruit is consistent with the law, which means that a Christian who is producing the fruit of the Spirit will have a life that looks consistent with what has been commanded morally by God. Today we're saying this. The one who invests his time, talents, emotional and physical energy and practical resources to the benefit of his own flesh will from the flesh reap corruption. But the one who invests his time, talents, emotional and physical energy and practical resources in the spirit will from the spirit reap eternal life. So obviously, what is Paul doing here in verses 7 and 8? Think. I'll say it again so that you can pay attention and think. Because if I just tell you, you'll walk out of here not remembering anything. What is Paul doing here? Here's a hint. I just spent 15 minutes doing it. Who remembers June 26th? Who remembers July 3rd? What was I doing? What do we call that when we go back and recover territory we've already covered? What is Paul doing here? This is nothing new. But you would be amazed in the commentaries and in the other messages that I consulted in hopes of getting something helpful. How many guys acted like, and now it's time to return to the law? You get to Galatians 6, 7, and 8. I believe this happens because of what's in verse 6. But you get to Galatians 6, 7, and 8, and so many teachers are like, yes, here's the law. What's he reviewing? I've identified in the course of Galatians two ways that the scriptures address the topic of sanctification. I've called it positional sanctification, and I've called it practical sanctification. Positional sanctification is what happens when God justifies us. He declares us righteous, and we are therefore set apart and given the promise of sinless perfection. However, we remain on in this body, and it certainly doesn't look like sinless perfection. So it's a positional thing. God says you are this. You are holy. You are set apart. Practical sanctification is the agonizingly slow process by which we begin to look like we're holy and set apart. Practical sanctification is the process by which our conduct is changed to reflect what we claim to believe. You don't stop sinning instantly the moment you come to faith in Christ. And I will never forget the moment that I understood that and what it did for my soul. Because here's what happens when you're at youth camp in the 90s. Some guy floats up onto the stage and tells you that the day he got saved, he never smoked, he never drank, he never swore, he never lied ever again. And all these youth sit there going, oh, I see what's going on. I'm not actually a Christian because I still do bad things. And then that scoundrel that floated up onto stage and said all that invites everybody to come down and cry and rededicate their life to Jesus. And here come the hormonal, emotional teenagers more confused than ever before about what it means to walk with God. When the Bible is clear, here's what it means to walk with God diligently, regularly confessing your sin, repenting of it, and turning away from it, usually for what feels like the millionth time. It is an agonizingly slow 
process. You do begin instantly to detest your old nature, so you war against it when you're a Christian. This requires the investment of our time, talent, emotional and physical energy, and practical resources in the Holy Spirit. Let me illustrate this for you with a real-life example to demonstrate what a good teacher I am. I want to stay married. I do. So, when everyone is planning to go to the bar after work on Friday and I get asked if I'll be joining them, my response is, I have a smoking hot wife and three great kids waiting for me at home. Why would I want to go do that? To which they respond, huh, that's a good argument. (laughs) And then I feel bad because I realize I'm talking to somebody that doesn't have those things. And so I said, but for what it's worth, if I didn't have those things, I'd be right there with you. I want to stay married. So I invest my time, my talent, my energy, that direction. That's what Paul's saying. He who sows to the Spirit will from the Spirit reap eternal life. I'm not telling you this so that you'll congratulate me on my spirituality. I'm telling you this example to illustrate the principle. You invest yourself in the Spirit. Why? Because the primary role of the Spirit in the life of the believer, the primary role of the Spirit in the life of the believer is what? After regeneration, what does the Holy Spirit mainly do according to the scriptures? In John 14, Jesus is laying out what's going to happen. I'm going to go. It's going to be terrible. You're going to cry. You're going to think I've abandoned you. But don't worry. When I get where I'm going, I'm going to send a helper for your faith. I will dwell with you. And it sews up all these passages where he said, abide in me and I will abide with you. You have to be in Christ. What is the primary role of the Holy Spirit in the life of a believer? When you pray, what's the Holy Spirit doing? Interceding for you with groanings too deep for words, comforting your heart when you are in sorrow, helping you understand what the scriptures are teaching when you read them. What does that require? Like the Holy Spirit isn't working over Zoom or Teams or Cisco WebEx. The Holy Spirit is with you. The primary role of the Holy Spirit in the life of the believer is the role of communion, fellowship with you. I invest myself in my wife and kids because I care about these relationships. I invest myself in communion with the Holy Spirit because I care about that relationship, as should you. I said we should ask a question. Here's the question. Does sanctification require effort? Wait, some of you are like, oh, he's asked this before. There was another sermon where he said that question a few times. I think I remember the answer. But I don't want to say it out loud because I might be wrong. 
So you waited until my mom answered it. And now you're pretty sure you heard her say yes. Does the Holy Spirit work with you in the process of sanctification? Yes. yes. Does sanctification then require effort? Yes. Come on, you guys. Does sanctification require effort? Yes. yes. Okay, good. Thank you. Is it grace-driven effort? Yes. What does that mean? Well, for starters, it means we need to look at sowing and reaping in the light of grace and not in the light of the law. I'm not doing religious things because I'm afraid of reaping corruption. The threatening statement in Galatians 6, verses 7 and 8, was not, he who sows to the flesh... The threatening statement is God's not mocked. I'm investing in the spirit because I desire to be in relationship with my creator and savior. Point two. That was all point one. We have to look at sowing and reaping in the light of grace not law. Point two, frenetic religious activity isn't fooling God. So verse seven says, do not be deceived. God is not mocked. Whatever one sows, that will he also reap. Pretending to be spiritual might impress people. Pretending to be spiritual might even get you status in the church. Pretending to be spiritual might even get you authority in the church, but pretending to be spiritual will get you a crop of corruption in the end. Matthew 7, let's turn there. Matthew chapter 7. Uh, This is every Reformed Baptist's life verse. Verse 21. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, look, this is Jesus talking, right? Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On the day of judgment, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? And then will I declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. I have often heard and probably equally often said that this is among the scariest things that Jesus ever said in all of his time on earth. I want to tell you that the fear has been taken out a little bit by this understanding. The self-deceived, spiritually dead on Judgment Day are going to say, Lord, Lord, didn't we prophesy, cast out demons, and do mighty works in your name? Well, I haven't cast out demons. I don't think I've ever prophesied. And the work that I've done in his name isn't all that mighty. So 
So what that verse is saying is there will be people bound for hell who have done more in appearance for the kingdom of God than I have. Here's what removes the fear. What Jesus says in response, I never They sowed to the flesh, but they looked quite spiritual while they were doing it. What's the difference? What does Jesus say? Depart from me. Why does he say it? Because I never knew you. And what is it that I am trying to get us to take hold of and not let go of as we've made our way through Galatians? This idea that Jesus came, lived, suffered, and died and rose again because God wants to be in relationship with you. And your frenetic religious activity is not a substitute for being in relationship with God. So Paul says it a 500th way as we approach the close of Galatians. Don't be deceived. God's not mocked. He who sows to the flesh with his religious activity, getting himself whipped up into a frenzy, trying to please God by lashing himself on the back, is going to reap corruption. But the one who sows to the part of the Godhead responsible for communion, the Spirit, the one, let me translate, the one who communes with and has fellowship with God in Jesus Christ, that person will reap eternal life. How do you make sure you are sowing to the Spirit? Simple question. Are you in communion with God?